Heavenly Father, we just want to lift up the name of Jesus once again in this place. We thank you, O Lord, as we have worshipped through song. Right now, we want to worship through the teaching and the study of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you will prepare our hearts, Lord, to be good ground. Good ground that will receive the seed, which is the word of the kingdom, so that um, it, will, it will bear fruit, Lord, 30-fold, 60-fold, and some 100-fold. And so, Lord, please be with me. All that's been prepared, I give it back to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, just lead us and guide us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening, the message is called the Nazarene Nazarene. And some of you are looking at these two words and you're wondering, where do we get these titles from? I will tell you, I don't know. <laughs> um, I just plan the messages and, you know, it happens to... And I'm, I'm asking for what the focus would be. And these two words sort of had a nice ring to it. And later on, I'll ex- we'll, I, we'll get to it soon enough on how it's going to uh, make an impact or at least have a meaning for all of us. But let's look at that first word called nursery first. All of us are Singaporeans, at least most of us. Let me ask you, what happens when a child turns three or four in Singapore? They go to nursery, right? They go to preschool, and we send them to N1, N2, which is really nursery one and nursery two. In fact, for some of us, the stress begins before even they turn three years old or four years old, right? In Singapore, we have this obsession for the best preschools, the best childcare services. Some, some people would start to register when the child is still in the womb, um, go and check things out, or they will shift to the right district to move to the right place so that they can have the right school. Now, if we look at this word nursery, it comes from this word called nurse, obviously, and it refers to someone who looks after or watches over something. But broadly, a nursery is any place in which something is bred, nourished, or fostered. If we talk about young children, then the nursery is a place or facility that watches over preschool or toddlers, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and upwards. If you're referring to plants, then a plant nursery is a place where plants are propagated and grown to a usable size. By this time, I I think you're getting an idea where this message is going. We are looking at how young things or young people, young plants, young children, tender and fragile as they are, how they are cared for and how they are prepared. In a little while, we're going to read the passage. But this understanding of a nursery will set the scene and the tone for what we're going to study tonight. We're going to ask ourselves and wonder perhaps, which nursery did Jesus go to? When he was a toddler, which school did he enroll for? Maybe he was homeschooled. How did he spend his growing up years? How was he raised? How was he prepared for his assignment? What was the environment that he was in, the exposure that he was given and the experience that was put upon him as he was growing up in those years? Tonight's passage is from Matthew chapter 2, and we're coming to verse 19 all the way through to 23. Let me read to you this passage, and we will launch from there. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 2. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought a young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. We want to begin with some observations and also understand the context so that we can better decipher what this passage is going to be. And then after that, I went to draw lessons for ourselves. And bearing in mind, we're talking about raising young plants or raising young children and preparing them for something that will be beyond. 
So let's go to the observations. First, we'll look at the overview of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We're in the last verses, 19 to 23, but you'll find that this whole passage really ends the entire introduction by Matthew. So far in our eight sessions, plus tonight is the ninth, we've been going through chapters 1 and 2, and we've gone through the genealogy, we have looked at the birth of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 2 actually describes the early years, his toddler or nursery age. That's all chapter 2 describes. Because the next time we meet Jesus in the book of Matthew, he's a full-grown adult. So you have got to factor in like a 20-plus year gap. So the last verses really concludes this introduction. But it is also the third part like of a mini-series in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, where these three little portions should really be read together and studied together. But we have had the liberty to break it up so that we can get into more detail. So you see, part one, Jesus was taken into Egypt and we are told that he will be later taken out of Egypt, but it doesn't happen yet. But as he stays in Egypt, meanwhile, back in Israel, babies are being killed. And so the author sort of gives you like a very nice drama unfolding, part one, and then part two, what happens. And then later on, part three, Jesus returns to Israel, which fulfills then, out of Egypt, I called my son. But within this passage, the first few verses would provide the context. And verse 23 really is the key verse. That's what we want to focus on tonight. Verse 23 would show us that verse of a prophecy that is fulfilled at this point in time. But the context shows us Joseph's obedience and also Joseph's concern. Now, we're not here to go through what has been taught before, but here we will see another behold, and it's a, another wake-up call. It's another arise, and then he arose. But as he does this, we see his obedience. He's coming back into the land of Israel. He has concerns, and his concern really is the danger that awaits him or the threat that is there in the region of Judea. But in spite of these concerns, he is still obedient. Then we see the real dangers and the threat of Achilles. Achilles actually had a very bad reputation. In fact, uh, uh, like his father, he was brutal and he was cruel. In fact, after Herod died, he was given half the kingdom and he ruled it with an iron fist. The other part of the kingdom was given to Herod Antipas and also Herod Philip, and these are called tetrarchs. But for Achilles, he's called an ethnarch. Now, these are all terms that you can research on. Now, it was so bad that after nine years, he was doing not a really good job, and the people were really complaining. Caesar removed him, and that's when Judea became a Roman province administered by Rome again. And so the Herod during Jesus' ministry is not Herod Achilles, it is Herod Antipas. Because Antipas is the one that looks after the region uh, of Galilee. We also see that in this context that Joseph, although he was obedient, he was also concerned, but at the same time, we discover God's direction again through another dream. And God warns him and he says, don't go to the region of Judea, but turn away from there. And that's where he finds himself in Galilee, lower Galilee, in this place called Nazareth. So in the context, we also see God's foreknowledge in play again. It's interesting, isn't it? That, you know, God can know and God can use uh, someone's emotion and concern and fear and through that direct this person by his foreknowledge to fulfill prophecy. I mean, you, you sit down there and you think for a while, it, it blows your mind. You can't connect by, by yourself. 
You know, you just have to submit that we have a God who knows all these things, who sees from the front to the back, from the back to the front, and however we feel, whatever we do, He's in total control. He's entirely sovereign. Okay? And so we have the focal point of tonight's message, which is this verse in verse 23. And He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, He shall be called a Nazarene. So let's pause for a moment and let's look at Nazareth. Now on the map, you'll find that Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they're very close together. But as Joseph brings the family back from Egypt, he doesn't stop there. He detours and he goes up to the region of Galilee, which is up further north. Nazareth is in a place that's called Lower Galilee. It's not exactly the prime location within Galilee. It is south of Cana, not far from Mount Tabor, and the population is about 3,000 inhabitants. Now, it's a place that abounds with brushwood and shrubs, and it is for that reason that Nazareth gets its name Nazareth. The Hebrew word for a branch or a shoot, and in that place you've got a lot of um, shrubs and a lot of little bushes and all. They have a lot of branches there. The word is called Nezer, which you have this word, Nazareth. It is also a military post. In other words, it's a military town. And guess what happens when you have soldiers living in the region? The place is not of good reputation. Very loose morals. Where you find soldiers, you'll find probably bars and prostitution you know, and the kind of trading that happens down there. The locals there would also trade with the Roman conquerors. These are all captains, generals and all. And so there's a certain kind of a culture that is there that's not really uh, looked up to. It is also, if you study about Galilee, Galilee is called the Galilee of the Gentiles because of its region up in the north, you will find that's also a main trade route that people out of Israel would come in and they will flow in and that, that will, those will be the immigrants who will stay there. And so you have a lot of Gentiles that are staying in the land of Israel. So military, loose morals, lots of Gentiles. You can tell that Nazareth is not a very well-respected place. No one likes Nazareth a lot. It is also the bottom of the socio-economic scale. It's got bad reputation, low reputation. In fact, Nazareth became a household name for anything to be despised or scorned. Right? So if you use this word Nazareth or Nazarene on someone, it's not a good thing. It's a term of insult. Now we get a hint of this if you remember the Gospel of John in chapter 1 verse 46. Nathanael was being introduced to Jesus or come, you know, we found the Messiah. You know, he's, this is Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael then says this one line, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, are you sure or not? Nazareth? You know, nah, you know, no, no good. Nothing good is there. So Nazareth now becomes a symbol of loneliness, of, of humility, of rejection. This is the place. And so Joseph was directed to bring his family back to this place in Nazareth. Next thing we have to consider is, how was Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, a fulfillment? Now that we've seen this place called Nazareth, we want to look at this verse. It says that this prophecy was spoken by the prophets. Now this is the first thing that we have to take note of. It doesn't say it's spoken by a prophet. In other words, Matthew was not quoting from a particular prophet called Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel from the previous quotations. That's what he did from Old Testament. You try to look for this verse, you cannot find this verse in the Old Testament. And so commentators and scholars, as they studied this, they realized it probably was not a quotation from a prophet directly, but it was a collective reference of prophets. In other words, various prophets would have said something that alludes to this uh, phrase. And as a collection of references, Matthew then says, this is fulfilling all that they have said. And what did they say? 
What did they say about the Messiah? What did they declare about the Messiah? Now let me show you four things about the Messiah that I've grouped um, the prophecies under. For example, the first one, we will see that the Messiah is one that would bring new hope and new life. It's a, when you talk about a shoot, a young tree or a young plant that's coming out, okay? It's green, it's fresh, it talks about life, there's a newness of hope that, that is coming forth. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, the prophet declares, In that day, the branch of the Lord, you get it, branch? The word Nazareth means branch. And so a Nazarene would be a branch. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. This was a prophecy that speaks of a coming time, and a coming day, where there will be a branch that brings hope. Because Israel you know, in the prophecies, are always being prophesied about them being taken out of the land. Isaiah chapter 11, very familiar, very famous. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And so here talks about a branch coming out of the stem, or in the NIV, they use the word a stump. Of Jesse. In other words, this tree or this plant has been cut off. It's been a stump. And if you look at a stump, very little life comes out of it. It looks as if it's dead already. But once again, there's a promise, there's a hope that life is coming. The branch will come out of this stump. You see that? So it's an allusion to the Messiah. The next thing we see that we're talking about the rule and the reign because the word rod is also symbolic of a scepter. But the word rod can also be symbolic and describing a branch. And so this scepter will come out. This rule and reign, this king, will come out of the stump of Jesse, the son of David. This branch will grow out of its roots. And how will he rule and reign? If you read on in Isaiah 11, verse 2 onwards. And this is the passage about the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will rule by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will be anointed with the Spirit of God. Not only that, he will rule with righteousness. Verse 4, it says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. This scepter is a scepter of righteousness. Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. And he goes on, he says, He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Shitzkenu. And a few chapters down in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, verse 15, he repeats it. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. Just as a side note, I want you to take note that in the Old Testament, you will always see these two words come together. Salvation, righteousness. Salvation, righteousness. Now just think about that, right? Because 
we are unrighteous and we have, to save, we have to be saved into the righteousness of God and that we will need to have His righteousness placed upon us and because we are people saved by Him, we now live by His ways in righteousness. So you cannot divorce these two words. Uh, that will just be a side point for us to take note. Zechariah says the same thing in uh, chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and the companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am, I am bringing forth my servant, the brunch. And this brunch is not any old brunch, and not only will he rule and reign, because in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it goes on to say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is the brunch, from his place he shall branch out, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he will be a priest. Yes, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne and he will be a king. He will be both the king as well as the priest. So this branch is not an ordinary branch. This is a picture of the Messiah. There's also another aspect which is about coverage and extent. Because I just read to you in Zechariah chapter 6, in verse 12 it says, The man whose name is the brunch, from his place he shall brunch out. Now if you have seen a picture of a brunch, and, and a, it looks like a map. You know? It looks like little tributaries and little lanes brunching out, little things just you know, snaking out from his throne, from his rule, this kingdom will branch out. There will be coverage and there will be extent. It's going to be far-reaching. It's going to cover the earth as the waters cover the seas in that sense. Okay, And we have that same kind of a, a, a picture when we read Genesis chapter 49, verse 22. And it talks about Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall. In other words, it doesn't stay where he is, right? But this plant is far-reaching, his branches will snake out and it's going to reach out and be a blessing to people out there. We're talking about the king and his kingdom, isn't it wonderful, right, when we look at this? And the fourth aspect is about fruitfulness. And fruitfulness is something that is very close to God's heartbeat, I know. I believe that. Because as opposed to Israel, if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, God will pronounce against Israel that they have been an unfruitful vine. They were supposed to bear fruit to His glory, but they would be unfruitful. But the Messiah that comes as that branch will be a fruitful vine. There will be fruit that would be accounted for. We just read also Joseph is a fruitful bough by the well. And so he is planted by streams of water. And we know that's always the picture of the Holy Spirit. He draws from that and he will be fruitful. It reaches out and the impact of the kingdom and the king would be experienced and tasted by all. So you look at this one little verse. Verse 23, He came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. And these four aspects apply to Him. Matthew was making this point. He said, look at this little baby. Look at this toddler. This is the Messiah. It's going to be fulfilled. But before we take out all our champagnes and all our confetti cannons, we have to look at this name once again and remind ourselves it's a term of insult. It's a term of contempt. So before we can do our hallelujahs and, you know, jump for joy, we've got to study this aspect. How does this apply to Jesus? He is a Nazarene. Now, some people think, oh, Maybe it's from this word, Nazarite, that Jesus was a Nazarite also. That's not true, because a Nazarite is not supposed to touch wine, 
and Jesus was accused for being someone who drank wine. So that's definitely not true. A Nazarite was set apart. Yes, Jesus was set apart. But just for you to know, uh, he was not a Nazarite, and that term does not apply here. But if we look at Jesus, he's always known by or identified by this phrase, Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Now you think about this, it's, it's not really a nice title. Now in Singapore, now no offence to anyone who stays in Geelang, but, you know, but Geelang is not known to be a, a, a place of good repute. So it's like someone coming to you and say, oh, you are someone, someone, and you live in Geelang. Okay, okay? I mean, th that's a kind of a reputation. So when it says Jesus of Nazareth, you can almost sense or hear that, that tone of contempt that's there. So for example, Mark chapter 14, verse 67. Remember the servant girl who came to Peter? Uh, and Peter was out there watching the trial of Jesus from afar. And here comes the accusation. The girl actually looks at him and says, You! Hey! You look familiar! You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it's, it's almost like, Oh, he's a scumbag. You must be a scumbag too. Alright, so that's a kind of a tone that we are looking at. John chapter 18, verse 5 and verse 7, the soldiers came and they, they, of course they asked, you know, who are you looking for? Oh, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. We are looking for this rogue, this no good guy, you know, he's from Nazareth. I mean, what good can come out of Nazareth? You know? So that's the kind of thing, when we read that, it, it's not a title to be revered, it's something that is repulsive to these people. I think the most clear thing is in John chapter 19, verse 19. And we see Pilate finally allowing Jesus to be crucified, sentencing him to death. And only criminals are, in inverted commas, worthy of such an execution. And the charge or their crime against them will be written on a piece of board, they carry it, and later on it will be nailed on top so that everyone can see the crime for which you are being punished. So Pilate writes on this piece of, of not paper, but you know, the board there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was his crime. It's like Nazareth, the lowest of the low, and you are trying to be the highest of the high, the King of the Jews. That's your crime. Don't try this trick on us. You know, if you're going to do this, we're going to nail you to the cross. So this is the picture of Jesus of Nazareth. Also, we know Jesus was despised and scorned, and he definitely fulfilled Isaiah 53 verse 3, which says he is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Psalm 22 verse 6 to 8. Verse 6, which is a messianic declaration. I'm a, I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So Jesus of Nazareth was similarly despised and scorned. Now, he didn't stay only with Jesus. The early church also were given negative labels. The first of which we see in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where the disciples in Antioch, that's when they were first called Christians. Now please know, Christian at that time was not a good term. It literally means followers of the Christ or those belonging to the Christ. What happened to the one who called himself the Christ? He was crucified. He was rejected. He was despised. And so when they look at these people, they say, well, man, these are the crazy ones. In fact, they also called them, they are called people of the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way. And because they were following that way, they received the same scorn and the same insult. The next description of them, we see labeled onto Paul, where Tertullus made a speech to Felix, 
accusing Paul as the leader of the Nazarene sect. The leader of the sect of Nazarenes. That's what Paul was referred to as. And so these were not na uh, names of, of good reputation. Not nice. Today we say, oh, we want to be Christian. And say, yes, you know, we, we feel so good and we, we wear a cross and we, we advertise it. In those days, not, not, not nice. Now, is it happening today for, for Christians also, labels? I think so. Okay, if you take a stand today, they'll call you a bigot. If you say, I'm not standing for this anymore, they'll call you intolerant. It's all over the newspapers. They call you arrogant because you think you are the only ones who know the way to the Father, which is true. But because we say you're going to hell, they're not happy with that. And so that's why Christians today have changed it. We don't talk about hell anymore. We're called hypocrites. We're called judgmental. Anything that we say today out of love, they take it as if it is because we hate them. More recently, last year, some of you recognized this sign. This is the Arabic letter, Nun, and it is called the Mark of the Nazarene. This is not an emoticon. It's not a smiley face. This is a symbol, a spray-painted symbol representing this. And when I, ISIS went into Iraq, they sprayed this sign on the homes of the Christians. Is that a good thing? It's not a good thing. Because what they're, what they're saying is that this house, we have people who follow the Nazarene. So either they convert or they get ready to meet their maker if they believe their maker so much. That's what we're going through today in our day and age. If we want to take on the name of Jesus... I keep saying we must be prepared for every and any eventuality. It's easy for us to preach it strong, fire and brimstone. But unless we are convinced within our hearts, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, I can tell you, we will buckle. Now, interestingly, this letter, Nun, I just found out also, it's also the 14th letter of the Semitic writing systems. Number 14. And when I came to this discovery, I thought, hey, that's interesting. Because here we are ending with this last word called the Nazarene. And we started in the introduction of the genealogy. How did Matthew group the genealogy? How many generations? 14 generations and then 14 generations, isn't it? Right? And 14, as you know, is a number, a gematria of David. 4 plus 6 plus 4 gives you 14. Is this God's little hint for us again to show you that everything falls into place? That even Jesus being called a Nazarene has a number 14 there for him. Just a side thought. So that's our observation. So I want to give you nursery notes tonight. You might be wondering, okay, so what are we looking at? Let me refresh your memory again. You see, Jesus as a Nazarene, he goes back into the land of Israel. How did he grow up? How was he prepared? That was the environment that he was put into. He was put into a place, a military outpost, lots of loose morals, lots of Gentiles down there, working with his father as a carpenter. That was his training ground from his nursery days all the way through to adulthood. And I want to believe that all those years is, is not just a silent year where we don't see anything, but God was quietly training His Son through the place of Nazareth and in, around Galilee. And Jesus had many assignments lined up for Him. But God didn't just take him and plonk him into the, uh, the, the assignments. God allowed him to come in the frailty of humanity to grow up in that system, to observe, to be exposed, to experience, to grow up, and also to learn and to know people, get to know and understand all these. And when the time was right, 
we, as when we come back for phase two, we will learn about how Jesus goes into his kingdom assignments. Now, as you hold that in mind, and we're going to go through these kingdom notes, think about yourself. Here we are asking for kingdom assignments. Here we are saying, Lord, help us. You know, and sometimes we, we may miss the significance of the things that we go through and the experiences that the Lord allows us. So let me give you some notes here. And I pray that it will be helpful for ourselves as it applies to us. And not only that, it might also be important for us to take note because God might want to use us to impact someone else in their experience and discovering their assignments. So the first point I want to touch on is spiritual parenting. Spiritual parenting. I think it's interesting that today the government is crying out for more childcare centres. We must, you know, they're in a rush to build more and more childcare because they want to make it easier for uh, the mothers to go back to work and also to, as an enticement for you to have more children and they say, we're going to look after you. But do you know they have a problem? They are, they are building so many childcare centres but they cannot find the right teachers. You hear this complaint all over the place. We have the centres, we have the structure, we have everything set up, but we have no good teachers. And the challenge is that more and more people are ready to farm out their children for others to look after. Let's not miss a spiritual parallel here. That I believe that we must recover and bring back spiritual parenting we cannot afford to farm people out and hope that they will spiritual parent them. We have to ask ourselves, are we doing what the Lord has asked us to do? Look at Jesus' parents. Joseph was a carpenter. I mean, he's, he's not a scholar. He's what we would be calling a, a, a blue-collared worker. His mother, Mary, was a young mother. I believe she was a stay-at-home mother. But we've already seen that both of them, they were godly parents and great examples. We've, we've been studying this, right? How Joseph would obey, how Mary would obey. They were both sensitive to the voice of God. They knew the Word of God. They exemplified simple faith. They showed trust. They had devotion for the Lord. And they moved with immediate obedience. I don't think it stopped after they went back to Israel. I believe they lived out Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 9, where you know Moses says, you will teach your children. I don't think Jesus was born with, with, with 20 commentaries downloaded into him. Right? Jesus had to learn. Who would teach? Would it not be the parents' responsibility first? I believe so. Was he taught by the synagogue? Probably. But the parents were the first ones to have an impact upon his life. I want us to consider that we need spiritual parents and disciple makers today. That has not changed. I believe your church preaches that too. Your pastors would also declare that. But it's one thing to say from the pulpit, it's another for us to really walk in that assignment. We need to have that capacity and that desire to sow into the lives of the next generation. Our biological uh, children, they need us. But our spiritual, the young people in the churches and in our families, and all, they also need us. I want to make this point clear because I keep this awakening. I, I am impatient to move into this aspect because as I shared just now, Teaching one way would only reach a certain point. And it's exciting that when I begin to communicate and interact with some of you across the table where we have a meal and when we talk and when we go out and do ministry together, that's where discipleship takes place. So a question for all of us this evening. Are you walking with someone else? Or are you walking for yourself? Are you walking with someone else 
or are you just in it for yourself? You must think about this. Because soon, by God's grace, we will get to Matthew chapter 28, right at the end. And it says, go and make disciples. So don't wait until then. I don't know how long we will take. I'm challenging you today. Are you walking with someone? Or are you walking for yourself only? The second point we learn about Jesus is that He was rooted in the Word. There's a critical need for God's Word to be recovered today. You see, the religious leaders may have known the Word, but they were largely indifferent to the Word. They searched the Scripture for eternal life, but they missed the one who is eternal life Himself. And you know, as a young Jewish boy, Jesus would have learned and memorized the Torah by a very, very early age. And in fact, his very first test, when he's pushed out into the, the, the wilderness, involved the Word of God. Even before he moved on any assignment, his first test was the Word of God. And my reminder for myself as well as for all of you listening to this is, if you desire to be on assignment for the kingdom, are you aligned and equipped with the Word of God? See, Bible study sessions are good, but it cannot replace the encounter and that personal relationship with the living Word. It cannot replace the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit that brings the Word alive. You want to be on assignment for God? You want to do God's work? You know something? God's work has to be done God's ways according to God's Word. There's, there's no shortcut. And it scares me today because maybe I'm old school. I keep saying this. We, we hardly see Bibles being carried these days. Okay, they are carried, but they are digital. And when you can't find something, you Google it. You can't find something, you use the search. But by yourself, if one day you're stranded without Wi-Fi, where's your spiritual Wi-Fi to the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Word or not? Today, we don't preach from the Word. We preach around it. People are weak because they do not know the Word. And so tonight, really, it's just an introduction and a, a challenge for you to be understanding and knowing the Word because we will get more deeply into this point when we study the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. The third point about Jesus' upbringing in His nursery days as a, as a, as a Nazarene is that he was placed in a place of insignificance and hiddenness. I'm not someone with green fingers, so I don't know this very well, but I guess that young shoots need to be nurtured in a, in a proper way. And if you expose them to too much sunlight or too much heat, it can kill. Or if it's too much water, it can, it can drown it out also, it will also die. So too much of a good thing, too much attention, you know, it, it, will, it will also not grow up well. Do you know similarly for all of us, if we get too much attention, too much limelight, too much exposure too quickly, it can also kill us. And the truth is our immaturity and our pride cannot handle it. So I want to caution you, you know, sometimes when we see people coming into the church, you know, and they are very young Christians, and they are, they are eager, and they are on fire, and they want to serve, you know, and they have, a, they have this wonderful talent. You, immediately you grab them, and you put them. They are not ready. They are not ready. They need a place of insignificance and hiddenness so that they can grow well. Then they can be strengthened until the right time for you to put them there. See, Joseph might, might have been thinking, oh, okay, Herod is dead right now. Thank you, angel. We're going to go back to Jerusalem now. Why? Because that's where the seat of power is. I mean, my baby, my boy, you know, is, is going to be the king of the Jews. So I better bring him to the capital of Israel. But God says, no, you don't go to Jerusalem. You go to Nazareth. 
And sometimes we want our Jerusalems. We, we want to get there first, you see, because that's where the big times, the big timers are. That's where the things are happening. I, I, I wonder if, you know, Joseph might, might have bargained with God and say, Nazareth, are you sure? No, 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 I go for something small. Can Bethlehem cannot. I go back to Bethlehem. It's also small, right? you know, it's also insignificant. But at least it's closer to Jerusalem. And God says, no, I'm really going to take Jesus into insignificance for a while. Sometimes I, we, we, we realize this, right? Even in the corporate world, you know, you can work in a big company, but when you come out and you start your own, very different. Or having myself as a, an example, I can be a pastor in the church and you, you command certain uh, prominence. Once you come out, you know, it's, it's very hard to talk to people sometimes. The first thing they ask you is, what do you do? I say, I'm full-time ministry. They say, oh, you know, are you a pastor? No. Do you, do, you, do you pastor a church? No. So what do you do? You're, you're taken out, you see? So once you are hidden in that sense, you're, you're lost. But the Lord wants us to learn insignificance and hiddenness. Look at the biblical giants. Joseph was taken into a prison. Moses was driven into the wilderness. David hid in caves. Paul, after his encounter with Jesus, went into the desert. And this is where we will struggle with our identity, with our significance, with who we are, with what we crave for. And this is where we will learn reliance. This is where we will learn trust. And this is where we will learn submission. And this is where we learn how to hear the voice of God. You see, when all the things are there for you, you don't have to listen to God. When all the things are prepared for you, you don't have to wait upon Him. You just wait for someone to tell you to do something and you'll be all right. But when God brings you into a time of insignificance and hiddenness, I challenge you, you see whether you struggle or not. You're wondering, should I go to church now? Nothing to do, you know. I, I feel so out of place. Okay, some people like that. But if you've been used to that kind of, a, of, of a attention, you will feel very, very lost. And so that's why a lot of people fall out. But there is a season where we must learn to appreciate the tasks that are menial. The tears that are shed, they are unseen. The obedience that is quiet that no one notices. No one appreciates at all. That's a preparation, friends. And no one can, can share that with you or they can share their stories with you, but you cannot experience that until you go through it yourself. Look at the example of mothers and caregivers who stay at home and no one looks at them. No one pays them any attention. And how many working women have struggled with this because when they were in the corporate world, man, they called the shots. But now when they're at home, the baby calls the shots. <laughs> Hiddenness. Are you following? insignificance and God wants you in that place because He's preparing you for something. When you're down and out, needy, helpless, and you're wondering what's happening, you see, God has you in the right place. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will you be faithful in this season? Will you be faithful in the small things? Will you be like Jesus where all he had to do was to just hammer a nail and maybe that was all he did? Maybe clean the, the shavings off the floor or pack up the tools after Joseph had finished the day. The Messiah doing all these things. The fourth point is about environment and, and experiences. Look back, think back. You know, I look across this room, we've got many years of experience here and whatever we go through and wherever it might be it will prepare us for our assignments see Jesus grew up in an environment of lowliness and of humility and he could identify quickly and readily with the brokenness and the oppression of the people put another way he spoke their language he could feel their pain he sensed their struggles 
right? You know, recent years, the complaint against the government or the ministers is that, you know, you're all scholars. You, 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 you don't understand. You have to come and mingle with the people. And praise the Lord, we're having dialogue sessions. We see ministers taking MRT. Jesus mingled with the people. That's what I'm saying. And he could understand them. He saw the soldiers. He saw the prostitutes. He saw the people who were, who were sick. He saw the people who were poor. He saw the oppression. He saw the injustice. He mingled with the people. And I want you to think back. Because whatever your exposure, God can use this for His glory. See, not everyone is called to minister to prostitutes. If I say, let's go now, you know, let's do a, 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 a prayer walk around Geelang, some of you might join me. I say, oh no, after the prayer walk, we're going to talk to the people in Geelang. Half of you might leave. I might be part of the half. We're not comfortable. Are you following? You know, it, we, 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 we're not wired in those ways. But some will know how to talk to these people. The exposure and the experience. Not everyone is called to minister to drug addicts. We, we may not understand, we may not identify. We may care for them, we may want to give them some money, but we may not know how to sit with them or even invite them into our houses, you see. Not everyone can, can relate to an LGBT. Sometimes we see someone talk in a different way, we get scared already. But someone who has come out of drug addiction, someone who has come out of prostitution, someone who has come out of a same-sex attraction, they understand the struggles. They will know how to minister to these people. I'm using these examples, but you think of your examples, your business example, your school experience, you know, the brokenness that you've gone through. God will heal you and use you. Our environment and our experiences are never wasted. And so I've learned to be aware. And as I look back and I reflect, I learn how to be aware of what God has brought me through and how I see God is using a lot of those things now even as I apply them in ministry. And God can do the same for all of you. The fifth point is about scorn and shame. If you haven't been put down or betrayed, at times it's hard to fully identify with Jesus or appreciate what He went through for you. All you have is theory and it feels good and it sounds right, nice principles. But when you go through, in your times of hurt and pain, and you really make an effort to cling to Scriptures, that's when you begin to appreciate what God has gone through for you, what Jesus has done for you. And we have to learn how to, to, to cling on to that and see that because otherwise we will always think that our problems are greater than anyone else's. But it is in those times where you're struggling and if you are struggling also right now, Make use of this situation. Don't waste it in that sense. God will never waste it. But if you have a wrong perspective, you might waste it yourself. As you cling to Scripture, He ministers to you. As you cling to Him, you grow stronger in Him if you do not allow your own hearts to become hardened. Those of us who have gone through these kind of uh, journeys and situations our hearts become softened to others who are either going through the same thing or even if we don't understand, we have gone through a similar kind of a situation, we become less legalistic and less judgmental. And to be broken and brought low is all a part of the process of growth. In the kingdom economy, the way down is the only way up. The way down is the only way up. And that's what it means to, to die. Literally, no longer I who live. When you come to the end of who you are, you say, Lord, I cannot take this anymore. That's when you realize Christ is enough. You're all in all. 
I know as I'm saying this, some of you are already nodding your heads because you've gone through a similar situation like that. And I always say this, we either humble ourselves or we are humbled by God. Humility is a good thing because it is then we have the right perspective of ourselves. Humility is not having a wrong perspective to keep pushing yourself down. That's not the idea. Humility is having an accurate perspective of who you really are and also that of others. And the wonderful promise is that God exalts the humble but resists the proud. Amen? This word of fruitfulness, which is the sixth point, comes up again. I shared just now that Israel was an unfruitful vineyard. And that's why God had to raise Jesus, who identifies with Israel as the new Israel, and He's called the branch. And we know from Scripture that Jesus was not only a branch, but He was also the first fruit. This branch bore fruit, the very first fruit, that He is the first to be raised from the grave, and it is raised on the day where they celebrated the feast of first fruits. Not only that, after that, seven weeks later on, on Shavuot, called the Feast of Weeks, Jesus then ushered in or brought in the harvest of souls, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was fruitful as the branch. Today now we say He is the vine. We are the branches. And so Jesus says, now I'm the vine, you're the branch, so go bear fruit. As I was fruitful, now you be fruitful. As I did my assignment, you go do your assignment. As I finished mine, I want you to fulfill yours. And the idea of finishing the assignment is not just a task that's done, but that it bears fruit. So friends, if you're understanding assignment and alignment, then we want to be abiding with Jesus. Because he says in verse 5 of John 15, he says, apart from me, i.e. in Christ, you can do nothing. And to do nothing means that you cannot bear fruit. In fact, you can do a lot of things, but a lot of things will not be fruitful. So as we look at Jesus raised up, prepared for His assignment, He was fruitful. We too desire to be fruitful. No point being leafy, but fruitless. Where you look good and you look big and bushy, but when people look in, there's just no fruit. And I warn you that fruitful branches, we are promised that we will be pruned so that we will bear more fruit and that finally we will bear much fruit that it brings the Father glory. You want to glorify the Father? Bear fruit. Similarly, we must be warned, unfruitful branches are broken off and cast into the fire. And the last note that we have is one of hope. It's about springing forth and there's a Verse that is familiar to us in Isaiah 43, verse 18. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Now this word spring forth is the plant term. Something that a shoot is now coming out. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And here, we are here to encourage one another that all hope is found in Jesus Christ. When all hope seemed lost for Israel, God brought forth a new branch from the stump of Jesse in Jesus. And so whatever we are going through, however dry it might appear to be, God is able to bring new life out of something that seems dead or hopeless. And as you are recounting and looking back on your experiences, this point is to remind us not to allow the old things to hold us back. Remember I shared with you 
our exposure and our experience and our hiddenness and our rejection and our pain, God can take it and use it for His assignments. But you see, if you keep looking back and as you reflect and you're stuck in there, then you're not going anywhere. That's why verse 18 of chapter 43, it says, Do not remember the former things. Don't consider the things of old. It doesn't mean don't reflect. Because there are times, there are other times that God will tell Israel to say, you better remember, this is where you guys fell. So don't commit the same mistake. But he's saying, don't get stuck in there because I've already moved on. There's a new shoot that's springing forth. There's a new branch that's coming out already that in your heart, I've placed new hope. I've given you a new assignment. I've given you a new task. Stop saying I'm not good enough. Stop saying I cannot do it. Stop saying I failed before because in Christ, all things are possible now. There's a new beginning. You want to know when? The Bible tells you, now. Now it shall spring forth. It's now. So be careful of the comfort zone. Some of us stay in the comfort zone. Joseph with the family, Jesus and Mary, Maybe he settled really nicely in Egypt. And maybe they already registered for nursery by the, by the Nile. And they don't want to lose that space. Suddenly there comes a, Behold! An angel appears to him in a dream. You mean I've got to give up the nursery in the Nile? I served volunteer hours for it, you know? And God says, Now, I'm bringing you to Nazareth. I'm preparing you. There are times that God will uproot us for His purposes because a new thing is springing forth. Are you ready for it? So friends, let's conclude. Nazarene, Nazarene. Jesus as a Nazarene in His nursery years all the way through to an adult. Seven points that I've shared with you. I remind you, as you look back, learn to look ahead. As you review your experiences and your exposures, ask the Lord, Lord, how can you use this for your glory? Whether they are positive or whether they are negative, you say, Lord, how would these be preparing me for the assignment that you have for me? And if you want to be on assignment for the Lord, and even right now you might be discovering that insults, betrayals, disappointments, they are to be expected. It's par for the course. Don't hope to serve in the church and serve as a Christian and hope that you're, no one's going to offend you. You need to know this. Otherwise, you're going to try to please men. You're going to try to approve people or try to get their approval and you're going to end up not pleasing God and not getting His approval. But if I want to be on assignment for God and I say, Lord, then what do you say I'm going to do? You help me be wise. Help me be sensitive. Help me not to put my foot in the mouth but people are going to offend me and I'm going to take it in my stride. And in my times of hiddenness and pain and struggle, Lord, you come and comfort me. I want to remind you to walk with someone or have someone walk with you because spiritual parenting is so important. Be content with the insignificance or hiddenness if, if that's where you are at right now. It's only for a season. But use that time, ground yourself in the Word of God. Use that time, be faithful in the small things that come to you because God will make you faithful over much. And when the time is ready, will you be prepared not to stay in the comfort zone, to be uprooted because God wants to take you to your new place. As we conclude two chapters of Matthew, I want to pray for all of us because we're going to take a break from these sessions. That when we take this break and we go into insignificance and hiddenness, that we will not forget these points, but we will mull over them and allow the Lord to teach us that by the time we come back, we're going to see Jesus launched into ministry. We're going to see Jesus declare the good news of the kingdom. I don't want you to miss that. I want us to journey together because this is what Kingdom 101 is all about, that we will know the King, 
embrace the kingdom that we may receive our assignments. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again, Lord, for the example of Jesus. Lord, we always look to Jesus and see him upon the cross. But Lord, tonight you're showing us something that is altogether different. You have brought us to a time where he was just a toddler being put in a place that is perhaps uh, dangerous and immoral and uh, uncertain. And Lord, this is where you trained your son, Lord. And we are reminded in the book of Hebrews that we are told that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. So Lord, teach us. We are your sons and your daughters. Tonight, we ask you, teach us and help us to respond in the right manner, Lord. That in whatever season we are in, we will make use of that time to be fruitful and to be faithful. And so help us, guide us, Lord, and lead us so that it will always bring you honor, blessing, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.